A few years ago, I, I led a workshop at the Indiana Christian Men's Fellowship in Indianapolis. And at lunch, after I had spoken, another minister approached me. And he said that he used to, that we used to have some fierce tetherball competitions at White Oak Christian Camp in Moberly, Missouri. And I had attended that camp for two summers when I was 13 and 14. And then he identified himself. He said his name was Chris McKinney. And I said, I remember you, but not for our tetherball matches. You see, the prettiest girl at camp, Carrie, had gone to campfire with me on Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night. The first half of the week was great. But on Wednesday, Carrie's friend delivered a note to me from Carrie. I still remember what it said. May I quote it for you? <laughs> Dear Jeff, I still like you, but, there's that conjunction, Chris McKinney asked me to go to campfire with him tonight, and I want to go with him. And then she started to write love. She had a capital L and an O. She thought twice and crossed out the two letters and signed her name. I remember it pretty distinctly. That was a first love that was lost. Love can be painful, messy, dangerous. But listen to what Ed Young says. The most dangerous love affair any man or woman will ever experience in this life is a love affair with money. Money is a deceitful object of desire, he says, because it can never deliver what it promises. As we consider the value of money today, maybe you're thinking, I don't need a message on the love of money. That's for, for those who are filthy rich. They need to hear that message, but, but I don't. Well, no matter how much money you have or make, this is a subject that applies to all of us. We're living in one of the most affluent countries in the world, and so we need to know what the Bible says about materialism. And as we're in this series on the family, this is one of the things that tears families apart. So I want you to understand today, you must take control of your finances or your finances will control you. It involves making a choice whether to worship God or money. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus cautioned, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and, and love the other, or, or you will be devoted to the one and, and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Why is money so often portrayed as God's primary competition? I believe it's because we often look to money to do the very things for us that God wants to do for us. Here are the lies that the God of money has told you. He lies to us with its claims and promises. And so I want you to listen to these familiar money lies. I'm sure Satan has whispered them in your ear before. Money lie number one, 
is money will satisfy you. If we only had enough of it, we think happiness will come. We have decided that the the phrase, um, money can't buy you happiness, is something that rich people have made up to keep the rest from being miserable. Tycoon J.D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money does it take to satisfy you? His answer, just a little more. Dr. James Dobson observed, until you learn to live on the money that you make, you will never have enough money, no matter how much you make. If we begin to bow down to the God of money, we can get snared in the insidious desire to be always wanting more, never satisfied, discontent, and failing to enjoy and appreciate the blessings that we do have. Lie number two, money means that you matter. We think that money can make us significant. We often judge our worth by how much we are monetarily worth. Instead of looking to God as our source of identity, we can look to money. And if you're the least bit insecure, there can be this subtle tendency to want to shore up a a sagging self-esteem with the purchase of something newer, bigger, better. And thousands of dollars are spent in an effort to keep up with the Joneses. One observer described it like this. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. Lie number three, money will make you secure. If I had more to live on, more for vacation, more to invest, more for retirement, more, then I'd be secure. And the truth is, whatever you put your security in and ends up being your God with a little g. It reveals where you've put your hope. And with enough money, God doesn't seem all that necessary. And we wrongfully assume that we can have enough or or save enough to take care of ourselves. Lie number four, money will save you. The real problem with idolatry is that we look to something other than Jesus for salvation. We're lonely, and we look to a relationship for salvation. We're empty, and we look to possessions for salvation. We're depressed, and we may turn to food for salvation. We're rejected, and so we look to pornography for salvation. We're angry, and so we we look to alcohol for salvation. We're apathetic, and so we look to our work for salvation. We're proud, and we look to status for salvation. We're worried, and so we look to money for salvation. We redefine money and the things it can buy for us as a substitute for God and the things he can provide for us. 
want to turn your attention to a, a passage of Scripture found in, in Luke 18. And there's a story that on the surface seems to be about money, but if you scratch at it, you will find that it's really about idolatry. In Luke 18, we read the story of a man who had accomplished, achieved, and accumulated. He was worshiping these gods of success. It says in verse 18, a a certain ruler, and Matthew's account points out that he was young. He's a ruler. The, The Greek word for ruler indicates he was a recognized official with authority. So we know that this man was was driven to succeed. He asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And even the way he asked the question reveals a, a false God. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and that word for inherit can also be translated acquire or earn or achieve. And this man saw eternal life as a measure of personal success. Okay, I've checked these boxes. I've done all this. Now, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And we're often drawn to the gods of success because these gods allow us to sit on the throne of our own lives. It can become about what we accomplish or what we achieve. And he thought of salvation as something to be earned another goal for him to accomplish. He was expanding his portfolio. Verses 19 to 21, Jesus says to this rich young ruler, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All of these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus gives the man the answer he expected. He tells the man, keep the commandments. If you want to know how to successfully earn eternal life, that's it. Live a perfect life. Keep all the commandments. But other than Jesus, no one has ever successfully pulled that off. And Jesus tries to help the man with his response by first pointing out that no one is good, only God alone, but but the man isn't connecting the dots. And so he says in verse 21, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Ironically, he was putting his hope in his religion. His religious rule-keeping had become his God. Verse 22, Jesus aims for the the God that is winning the war in this man's life. This is the only time Jesus ever said this. This wasn't uh, a statement he ever issued to anyone else, but he knew the battleground for this young man was over his stuff. And so this is what Jesus said, driving to the heart of that. He said, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. 
The, the adjective used to describe this man's wealth puts him ahead of almost everyone. And in reading this story of the rich young ruler, one might conclude that this is a story about money, but as I said earlier, it's really about idolatry. The idolatry is the key to, to properly interpreting the theology of this text. And this man had an idol before him and the Lord. So Jesus does to this man what he's done to many of us. He, he puts himself in direct competition with what this man loves the most. And he says, you choose. It's either going to be A, money, or B, me, but C, all of the above isn't an option. We must choose whether to worship God or money. So we've looked at the money lies. Let's, let's counter that with the money truths. Money truth number one, money will never satisfy. Why Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 5, 10, and 11, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. He goes on, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? Money truth number one, money will never satisfy. It'll have that salt water effect that can leave you craving more if, if you fall in love with money. Truth number two, keep possessions in balance. Police in Wheeling, Illinois, accused the Walmart cashier of buying merchandise at the store using credit card numbers she had copied from customers. Investigators admitted that the cashier had made their job a lot easier. They caught her because she identified herself on the fraudulent receipts using her own real name. And so the question they asked was, why did you use your own real name? She said, I wanted to get my employee discount. <laughs> All right, she wasn't a real bright thief, but she was a thrifty shopper. So, the love of money creates this insatiable appetite. It, it always wants more. It's a thirst that's never quenched, and it's hunger to have is never satisfied the more you acquire, the more you have to care for. And after a while, the, the baubles, which seem so critical to corral, sit forgotten, gathering a film of dust, or they end up out of sight in, in some storage unit. The, the Madison Avenue advertising masters make us want the newest, biggest, best, the latest. They effectively sell the sizzle, of the products and possessions that we are told we need to have. And Satan makes us feel inferior and whispers lies of significance. If you own that, then you'd really be somebody. The neighbors get a new recreation toy or property adornment, and it's usually just a matter of time before three or four more neighbors purchase the same thing that they've seen living nearby. And, well, they got that. I think we ought to get one of those. 
Truth number three, security is found in the Savior. Subtly, seductively, we can buy into the lie that accumulating the right things or acquiring more things or achieving the nicest things will bring a lasting security to our lives. It does not. In fact, just the opposite is true. More things, more stuff creates more pressure for us. Sure, material things are nice, but when we veer off course and begin to be driven by a love of them and a compulsion to acquire more of them, then it can become idolatry. We try to substitute the fulfillment that God, our creator, intended for us to derive from fellowship with him. And we substitute that for this facsimile fulfillment derived from created things. Solomon discovered that with greater wealth comes greater pressure. Listen to Ecclesiastes 5.12. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. What Solomon's saying is the employee may get a great night's sleep, but the owner of the company may be lying awake thinking, should I hire that applicant I interviewed today? And do I need to increase my liability insurance coverage? Is that new worker robbing from the cash register? How can we compete in this changing economic climate? And he's wondering, did my employees turn off the coffee maker or is my store in flames right now? And and that's what Solomon's saying. The more you have, sometimes the more worries you have. When we buy things, we just discover that instead of freeing us, they can enslave us. Now we have to polish, ensure, protect, dry clean, feed, maintain, secure, and pay for years on our valued material item. Instead of being Instead of it being our servant, sometimes it feels more like we are its slaves. So what's the solution? I think the solution is to view possessions with balance, appreciating them, utilizing them wisely, but never bowing to them by letting them occupy a place of disproportionate value in our lives. If you've been favored with nice things, enjoy them. Realize they are a gift from God. Use them for his purpose. Keep them in perspective. And if you don't own nicer things, that's not the end of the world. You will have fewer hassles, worries, and repairs with which to contend. In either case, practice appreciation for what you do have without being consumed by greed for what you don't have. Two young brothers were were spending the night at their grandparents' house, and at bedtime, the two boys knelt beside their beds to, to say their prayers, and the younger one began praying at the top of his lungs, I pray for a new bicycle. I pray for a new smartphone. 
I pray for a, an iPad. And his older brother leaned over and nudged the younger brother and said, Hey, why are you shouting your prayers? God isn't deaf. He said, No, but Grandma is. <laughs> we can be consumed with a greed for more. Let me give you truth number four. Uh, apply eternal priorities. Invest in the spiritual opportunities of the kingdom of God. Or, or said another way, you can't take your money with you, so you might as well send some ahead. And the gifts and sacrifices made now for the Lord, for the church, will reap a harvest of souls in heaven for eternity. In the grand scheme of things, that surpasses indulging in another temporary extra in the here and now. Don't take my word for it. L listen to Millard Fuller. He became a multimillionaire by the age of 29. He said he had bought his wife everything she could possibly want. One day he came home to a note that announced she had left him. And he went after her and found her on a Saturday night in a hotel in New York City. They talked into the wee hours of the morning as she poured out her heart and tried to make him see that the things that society says are supposed to be satisfying had left her feeling very cold inside. Her, her heart was empty. Her, her spirit was burned out. She was dead inside, but she wanted to live again. And, and kneeling at their bedside in that hotel room, Millard and Linda decided to sell everything they had and, and dedicate themselves to serving the poor. The next day, being Sunday, they found the nearest church and they went there to worship and, and thank God for their new beginning. They shared with the minister what they were going through and, and told him what had happened and, and the decision that they had made to sell everything and give it all away to the poor. The minister told them that such a radical decision was really not necessary. And Millard said, he told us it wasn't necessary to give up everything. He just didn't understand that we weren't giving up money and the things that money could buy. We were giving up, period. Millard and Linda started an organization you're probably familiar with, Habitat for Humanity. And it grew out of that, that night. Jesus said, Matthew 16, 26, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? I wonder if the rich young ruler became the rich old ruler. Maybe one of the strangest sentences you'll ever read is verse 22. He became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. That's not how we would imagine that sentence being constructed. That's not the kind of thing that someone is generally sad over. But he was sad because he wanted to love both God and money. And Jesus says, you've got to choose. That's not what he wanted to hear. But that was the invitation that Jesus offered him. So 
What's the solution? Make sure you have possessions and that your possessions don't have you. If you don't own nicer things, it's, it's not the end of the world. You'll have fewer hassles, worries, and repairs with which to contend. But practice appreciation for what you have without being consumed with greed for what you lack. And so Tillotson paraphrased Matthew 16, 26, the verse we just looked at about forfeiting your soul. He said it this way. He who provides for this life but takes no care for eternity is wise for a moment but a fool forever. Let's look at one last verse before we stop, and it's found in Ecclesiastes 2. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. It's describing how Solomon had documented his achievements there beginning in verse 4, how he built houses, planted vineyards, he had gardens, he had parks, he owned slaves, he owned flocks, horses, herds, he amassed gold and silver, he had singers, he had a large harem. From a human standpoint, he had everything. And this is what he says at the end of his life. I denied myself nothing my eye desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Solomon made Warren Buffett or, or Bill Gates look underprivileged. And one would think through all that wealth and material comfort would emerge the elusive prize of happiness, which we all desire, but it did not. And so he writes to us and cautions us not to chase the wind. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we live in a culture where... Uh, Everything around us is trying to shoehorn us into spending more money and buy more things and just help us to have a, a greater degree of contentment because we've spent time in your word this morning and we've sensed that real fulfillment doesn't come from what we possess but because we belong to you. Our lives have value and worth and so I I pray you'll help each of us to personally apply this, this message in the way that's needed in, in each individual case it's our prayer this morning in the name of Jesus Amen I'm going to ask you to stand right now and we're going to sing a song of decision this is a chance for you to come to the Lord, to confess him as the, the king of your life, to, to surrender to him, to have no barrier or obstacle that, that would obscure your obedience and, and faithfulness to him. So if you're ready to bow your knee to the king, we invite you to come forward as we sing.